0: Um, hey, my name is Seth McCoy. I work here at Woodland Hills with uh, like our, our students and, uh, and young adult ministry here. So on behalf of Woodland, let me just say a big welcome. We're really grateful that you're here. You chose to carve out a you know hour and a half or three and a half hours, we'll see how long this goes, uh, on a Sunday to be with us. So we're, we're grateful for that and uh, we hope that this time is helpful for us all. Um, um, all right, hey. Before we uh, dive in here, I hope you wouldn't mind, but um, let's spend maybe about sixty seconds just in um, in silence. I don't know about you, but um, you know, mornings and getting here can be pretty hectic with kids or you know, wardrobe issues. Or I don't have any hair problems, but <laughs> apparently, for some of you guys, that can be a challenge in the morning. Um, so, if you just want to take a minute and sort of let all that stuff. Uh, sort of pass to the back of your mind and sort of give God the front side of your mind for this next little bit here. Ask God to speak to you. Um, the book that we're going to talk about, the Bible, it's, uh, it's not just a book of information. We think it's a book that's alive because God's spirit uh, speaks to us, and that's a pretty special thing. So let's take just a minute, and you in your own words and in your own way, why don't you just prepare yourself, ask God to speak to you during this time, and then uh, I'll say a prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump off into the deep end. Heavenly Father, we, um, in our world of of packaged goods, so many times we want to fit you into into a box, a compartment, and yet you're the God who uh, created the entire universe. Areas in our universe that we can't even see, you, you handcrafted. Floating in this monstrous universe is this little teeny planet called Earth, and on that planet, here we are. It's, amazing. it's an amazing mystery that you even pay attention to us, that you even want to hear us, or uh, that you even want to speak to us. We want to honor that this morning. Jesus, as we look at some things that you taught, uh, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Your calling um, on our lives is no less challenging than it was your first follower's. Yeah. But we believe that there's nowhere else to go. You, you're the one who has words that bring life, and we need that life this morning. So, Holy Spirit, help us. Give us grace and strength to open up our minds and our hearts and our ears. That empower me somehow to try to say something meaningful, uh, or even it may not even be what I say this morning. It may be what these folks think. It may be a way that you speak to them and lead their own mind and heart. That's different than what I'm saying. We. Uh, Our lives and our world is so filled up with stuff that we just want to take the next few moments and push all those other things out of the way to try to create a space where you can act um, in our lives. We give you this time in your name. Amen. 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 Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke. Uh, We're continuing the never-ending journey through Luke. Um, So it's going to be Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be at verse 1. You can open up there and sort of put your finger there. Because um, before we get there, uh, we, have to, we have a doorway that we have to go through first. Um, so the story that we have this morning is one of the parables of Jesus. And uh, when I grew up, my dad used to read us uh, sometimes bedtime stories. And uh, my dad is a, like a teacher by nature, so he always... There was never anything done that didn't have some point or some lesson that you were supposed to learn. Uh, So he would read us these uh, stories that are called Aesop's Fables. I think I'm saying that right. And they were always neat and witty and funny or, you know, about a tortoise and a rabbit that get in a race together and you think the rabbit's going to win. Of course the rabbit's going to win. In the end, the rabbit doesn't win because he's lazy and the tortoise wins. And so the lesson is slow and steady wins the race. Some people think parables are like that. Parables are stories that... um, have sort of predictable and trite phrases that sort of come at the end of them. Uh, sort of like bumper sticker slogans that you can come up with parables. The problem is, that's not really what parables are. Um, a parable, we'd be better off to think about a parable like a riddle, something that's puzzling that we have to work to figure out. Um, now, Jesus, uh, sometimes we think that Jesus invented parables, he did not. Um, Jesus came along the, uh, a long line of, of what the nation of Israel would call prophets. Uh, Jesus, most people understood what Jesus was doing in his ministry as the role of a prophet. They were very familiar with prophets. They had had them around for a long time. And so Jesus, when he came, the things that he did very much fit into the category of prophet. Now, let me give you a couple ways that, that parables were a part of the prophet's world before Jesus came around. There was once this king in Israel's history, great warrior king uh, named David. David was one of their favorites. Um, but just like kings often do when they have ultimate power, they sort of, it goes to their head. And one night he's on top of his roof, and the king basically gets anything he wants. He sees his neighbor's wife, decides he's the king, and he wants that wife. So he takes it. Um, and then to sort of cover up the tracks, he sends her husband off on the battlefield to get killed. And now the prophet has a dilemma. Because the prophet's job is to tell the king when he's being an idiot. And I don't know how many of you have bosses that are idiots. Uh, Maybe a lot of you. uh, But that can be hard to... You have to be very tactful when you tell your boss that they're wrong. That's just sort of the nature of bosses. Big deals don't take a liking to being corrected. So Nathan has to figure out a way to correct David. He could just walk up to him and say, David, you're being an idiot. That usually resulted in losing your life when you're a prophet. Heads get chopped off for that kind of stuff. Kings are real good at chopping off heads. Um, so Nathan has to figure out another way to get at David and say what it is that he wants to say, but in a way that David will hear it. So what does he do? He tells him a parable, a story. Now, here's the thing about the parable. Um, a parable is a storyline about characters, but it's never really about those characters. So Nathan tells David a story about shepherds and sheep, but he's not talking about shepherds and sheep at all. He said, hey, there was this one shepherd who had tons of sheep. His next-door neighbor only had one. This one with tons of sheep decided that he wanted the one from his neighbor, so he took that sheep. Nathan says to David, what should happen to that guy who stole that one sheep? He goes, well, of course, he should be killed. See, kings, this is the way they think. There's no other options. Just kill him." Um... (laughs) And then comes the moment where Nathan looks at him and says, David, that's you. Now, I used to think the biggest thing that God was frustrated about with David was immorality, that he slept with another guy's wife, and that's, a, you know, that's, uh, that's fornication and adultery. David needed to be faithful to his wife. The problem is David had hundreds of wives, so which wife are we talking about being faithful to? So you can always tell what it is that God's going after by the kind of story the prophet tells. Is the prophet going after the moral dilemma of sleeping with another man's wife? Did he tell a parable about adultery? No, he told a parable about justice and greed. So said, David, you had hundreds of wives. He could have said God's frustrated about that, but in some odd way, God doesn't really even say anything about him having a hundred wives. It's the fact that he had a hundred, but he took one from this guy who only had one. Um, yeah, now another one, What prophets would do is they would tell stories like that, but sometimes they would be called to live out or dramatize a story. Um, And one of those stories is actually the story of Jonah. Uh, You know, there's a lot of connections between Jonah and Pinocchio, Uh, people getting swallowed by fishes. I still, um, it seems like a crazy story to me. Um... But some people would say, well, the point of the Jonah story is if you don't listen to God, a whale's going to come eat you, and eventually God's going to make you do what he wants to. That's a really bad point. That's not the point of that story at all. uh, Because lots of people make choices to disobey God, and I've never personally gotten swallowed by a fish and transported somewhere else. So there's got to be something else that the Jonah story is about. So now think about this for a second. Now, this, the Jonah story, and what you should know about the Bible. Almost all the books of the Bible are written in response to something. We sort of we can sometimes think that um, uh, that like Genesis, for instance, we can think that Genesis got written by some sort of anonymous person who was witnessing the creation story happen. No, the creation story doesn't get written down till tons later, like in um, when the hebrew people are in exile that's the first time that story gets written down and the reason it gets written down is because they're living in babylon and all their neighbors are saying that marduk created the universe and the jewish people know marduk didn't create it god created it so they start writing down the creation story does that make sense Now, in Jonah's day, the problem was God made this covenant with Abraham that God's chosen people, God is going to bless them for the purpose of them blessing the whole world. God wants to bless the whole world, not one nation. We could make a bumper sticker like that. That'd be a good one for today. Um, So God wants to bless the whole world through this group of people, but what's happened is this group of people feels like they're special now. Oh, well, we're God's special people, so we can treat the other people like crap. So some of them had married non-Jewish wives and had mixed children. And King Ezra decides it's time for us to sort of clean house here as a nation. And anyone that's not full-blooded Jewish has to go live somewhere else. So imagine families getting ripped apart, wives leaving husbands, children having to disappear because they're not fully Jewish. When kings do stupid things like this, that's when prophets have to tell stories. That's when prophets have to live out stories. So Jonah... Uh, the Jonah story—you got this Jewish person, this Jewish prophet, who God says he's supposed to go to a Gentile country, um, and he's supposed to go to the Gentile country and ask them or tell them that they have to repent or they're you know turn or burn. So now uh, Jonah has this idea—he knows they're not going to turn because they're Gentiles. So he's actually very excited about the burn part of this whole story. Um, he wants vengeance, uh, which nations usually want on people that are their enemies. So. Uh, so he, uh, he goes there, and surprise part of the story, the Gentiles repent, and Jonah is t- t- ticked. Hey, God, why did you send me up here? I came up here to see some fire, and there's no fireworks going on here. This is a problem. Um, why would the Jewish people need to hear the Jonah story? Because this story is about them. the the nation of Israel is Jonah. They had this calling to bless the nations and bless the Gentiles, but they didn't really want that. They just wanted to judge them. And God was telling them a story that revealed this is God's heart to people that are outside of the Hebrew people, outside the nation of Israel. So the point of these stories is to tell a story about what's currently happening and try to crack people's worldview open. um, To... Explain to them what's happening right now in a way that they'll listen to. But it's always encoded and kind of weird, like a riddle. A couple other things that we should notice. Parables always have context. I don't know how many of you enjoy watching the television program Lost, but I'm, I'm addicted to it. Um, so I watch Lost. Now, I used to, the first couple seasons when I was watching Lost, or I don't know, maybe you watch Days of Our Lives, or I don't know what other kind of, what's that? Young and the Restless. There we go. Um, yes, we could have a poll right quick. Um, if you watch any kind of show that the one episode builds on another, here's the, here's the challenge. You may be able to watch one episode and enjoy it, but you're not really going to understand it. If you sat down this Wednesday night, not having seen any of the episodes of Lost and watched the episode, you would be lost, literally. <laughs> you would have no idea what's happening. Well, it's sort of like this with the Bible. Sometimes we have this idea that the Bible is sort of like proverbs, filled with just miscellaneous neat statements that you can take, but that's not really the way the Bible is. The Bible is one long winding story. That's very complicated. That has to do with the past, but also has to do with the future, and does it all within the context of the present. So sometimes, well, this is what we do at Woodland, we take sections at a time, and we sort of lift them right out of the story that they're part of, and we talk about them. Now, that's not bad, but it is dangerous. It's dangerous because you can think this part means one thing, but when you put this puzzle piece back in the overall puzzle and you look at it, you may find it means something completely different. Does that make sense? So it's very important that we remember that parables and stories that the Bible always has context. The other important thing to notice is not only is it part of one overarching Bible story, it's also contained within one book called Luke. Now, I used to have this idea that when the Bible got written, it was like an alien abduction, that there'd be this human being and this alien would come down Take, over, you know, take me to your leader, and they would, their mind would get washed, and their arm would become automatic. They wrote a whole book of the Bible, and then the alien would lift, and they would wake up from their trance, and there would be the book of Chronicles. Just sort of magically appear there, and they would have no idea about that. That's not really the way the Bible got written. There are real human beings writing these books. Um, when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian people telling this dude to stop sleeping with his mother-in-law, he knew what he was saying. He's writing something specific to a specific group of people. And we would do well to try to figure out not just the words that we see here. We're not just asking the question, what got written down? Why did it get written? Why did it get written in this way? And what did the people that receive this book or hear this parable, what did they hear? For instance, I don't know if you guys ever did a little thing in school called a time capsule. Yes, no, let's nod some heads here if we, yes, a handful. So if you do a time capsule and you take out meaningful things that would, you know, would talk about what your culture was like, you know, so, um, you know, for us, we'd have like a pair of jeans that were like pegged and rolled up and like a hyper fluorescent shirt with a swatch watch that would tell people what our culture was like. Um, uh, so, but let's say that we were going to make a time capsule um, on September 12, 2001, the day after 9-11. And we grabbed the newspaper from that day, and there's a picture with you know, buildings that are collapsed and smoldering, and the headline says, you know, the day the earth shook. So you wrap that up and put it in a time capsule, and 200 years later, an alien shows up, and they pull out the time capsule, and they're trying to figure out what happened on this day. And they look at the picture, and they read the headline. Of course they would think it's an earthquake, right? The day the earth shook. Crumbled buildings, fire, absolutely. They would completely be missing the point. What we have in the Bible is a record of what was said. So we have a parable here that Jesus actually told his disciples. What we don't have, uh, and what we're going to have to get to in some of our time together this morning, what did the disciples hear? So when we write that newspaper article, yeah, we're explaining, um, there's a record written of what happened, but when we say the day the earth shook, what did we mean by that? We meant something very different than there was an earthquake. So we're going to have to try to crawl back into the world that Jesus lived in. I mean, Jesus was, after all, we should not forget, Jesus was not Swedish. Um, He wasn't Asian or uh, Irish. I like to think that he was Irish, but he wasn't. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish-type prophet and teacher telling Jewish-type stories to a jewish audience that he traveled around to almost all of his ministry was moving in between jewish towns addressing the nation of israel trying to tell them the kind of stories that would help them not repeat the jonah story telling them the kind of stories that corrected king david when nathan told them okay last thing that's important to know about parables the science of understanding parables the most important parable is always at the end um I'm hoping that it's going to be this way with Lost. I'll be severely disappointed if the best part of Lost isn't at the end. But at the end is where the whole plot line comes together, where things are confusing and I have no idea if John Locke is dead or alive, but I'm hoping that if I get to the end of the season, the the questions will be answered. So it's always very important to notice the end. In fact, in most parables, it's best to start with the last sentence and work your way backwards. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. All right, so why don't you pull your Bibles out. That was a long introduction, the sermon before the sermon. And uh, let's actually read through uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Um, now, first things first, how many of you guys are in your Bibles? Your, each section has kind of a little title. I guess a lot of you have Bibles like that. What, somebody tell me what this story is titled in your Bible. The story of the persistent widow. Yes, the story of the persistent widow. See, here's... Some of the problem with, um, with the way we approach the Bible for a long time is before we even hear the story, someone else who didn't write the Bible is telling us what the story is about. So I would tell you to get a Sharpie and scratch that out. We'll find out. This might be the story of an unjust judge. It might be the story about a just judge. Uh, it's a story about a lot of different characters. So let's, let's jump in. So Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Um, Right away, we have to do some separating here. He wanted to tell them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Let's be careful of making the connection they should always pray and not give up praying. Those two things might be related, but he might mean something very different between always praying and not giving up, okay? He said, here comes the story. In a certain town, there was a judge who didn't really care about God and didn't care about people. Um, Yeah, none of us have any idea about judges like that, right? Uh, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, very important, this is the second time we've been given this phrase about the judge. Whenever the Bible mentions something twice, especially Jesus, very important. Uh, Yeah, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and Beat me up. That's weird. Widow beating up the judge. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Have we ever heard that phrase before? Crying out day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's the last sentence. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How does that fit into this parable? Okay, now a couple passing comments I need to make um, about parts of the scripture verse that stand out. The first one is in verse 3. Now, I've heard this story preached before, this parable preached before, and the lesson went something like this. If you pester God long enough, he'll eventually give you what you want. I think that's a bad way to understand this story. Um, now i have a toaster that's like that like you know i don't use very many kitchen appliances but this one i go to make toast and there's like there's supposed to be this little knob on there that controls how toasted the toast gets that thing doesn't work it's so totally pointless so i put the toast in and i push it down and five seconds later it pops up again it's like oh no that's not toasted yet but then if you try to push the stupid bread back down what does it do the thing screams at you, eh. then you, so eventually, if I push that thing down 15 times, it will finally respond to what I'm asking for. So that's sort of like the toaster view of God. God is a toaster that you have to keep ramming your toast into, and eventually he might give you what you want. That's a really bad idea. Um, now, it's funny with my toaster, but I have a friend who got diagnosed with cancer, and this friend's idea of God is that if I don't pray for my healing every single day over and over and over and over, it's not going to happen. And if I don't get healed, it's because I didn't pray enough. Because I have to be like the persistent widow. And I just want to tell her, no, that's crazy. So the idea is that if you miss prayer today, that God's going to reach down and make the cancer start growing again? That's No, that is not the point of this story. What the widow is seeking out in this story um, is uh, what she looking for she's looking for justice against her adversary now a widow what she's talking about a widow in this world didn't have any rights um, so if her husband owned if they owned property as a family together and they had children uh, when the husband dies the, the woman can't be the benefactor she can't own anything So the husband's family would then take over all the property, and it would be up to them whether they wanted to let the woman keep living there or whether they would let her have the money. They could take it all away, and she would be stuck with nothing. Now, what she could do, though, is she could go to a judge, and she could ask the judge to do what's right. That's what judges are supposed to do. They don't very often do that, but you can ask them to. Um, She's not asking for a new Mercedes. She's not asking for her head cold or allergies to go away Um, she's not asking for general internal peace because she's upset she's asking for her basic human rights we should be careful not to turn this into the genie God where if you're persistent and you keep asking God he'll give you whatever he wants he won't or that's not what this story is about this story is about the fight of a widow to find basic human rights and dignity in a society that denies it very important for us to set that context Um, okay so the second thing to notice is jesus never tells stories on accident there's all if the point was if you pester long enough uh he could have told that story a million ways but he chose in this case an unjust judge and so a person with power and no love or concern and another person with no power um and look look how the story unfolds the There's a couple of choices the widow has. The widow could get a gun. Well, she couldn't get a gun in first century Palestine. She could get a sword, and she could go stab her husband's family and take the money, and it would rightfully be hers. She'd have to commit murder to get justice, uh, but she doesn't. Um, So apparently, even in this story, Jesus has the idea that even if you're suffering unjustly, killing people isn't the answer that's one option the other option is she could revolt against the judge uh she could try to overthrow his authority um but that's not the right answer either and interestingly enough these are exactly the two choices that the jewish people of jesus day had towards the roman occupation an unjust occupation i mean the disciples and the jewish people were very familiar with unjust judges who had power but didn't really care And Jesus says, there's two ways that you're going to want to naturally respond. You're going to want to go kill them. And there was plenty of Jews taking up swords in the name of justice and killing people in that name. And there was plenty of them trying to organize together to start a revolution. And what does the widow do? She doesn't seek revenge. She doesn't seek revolution. But she doesn't stop witnessing. She comes over and over again. This injustice, I won't let it go away. I won't be silent about the way I'm being treated, even though the judge is going to want to. And in the end, isn't that exactly what the judge does? He doesn't give her what she wants because he all of a sudden has his eyes opened and he all of a sudden cares about justice. He gives her what she wants so she'll shut up because judges don't like injustice being talked about under their watch. Uh, In fact, I I have a friend that's reading a book called Black Like Me. Um, it's about a reporter uh, during the Civil Rights Movement uh, that painted his skin dark and went down to the South to experience what is it like to be a black person uh, um, in that society. And he had a, all going through the South, uh, he saw a lot of violence and anger and hatred, and he went to Montgomery, Alabama, where Martin Luther King Jr. had been been doing a lot of work. Um, And he said his experience in Montgomery was completely different. He said that the African-Americans or the black people here, uh, there's a solidarity with them that they won't retaliate against anyone else. But, so what you see is you see, they'll, but they won't stop marching. They keep marching and keep marching and the white folks that hate them keep spitting at them. They'll go into their face. They'll try to provoke them to react. Um, and he said the more and more we watch this, the more and more white people see this, the more and more the white people will be shamed here. And maybe shame will be the only way that they'll change. Very interesting. That the only reason the judge changes, he doesn't change because he has all of a sudden a change of heart for justice. He changes the law or votes in her favor simply because he doesn't want to be shamed. Now, how do we get that? Um, Remember that phrase in verse 5 is like, she's going to come jump and attack me. I don't know what kind of picture you have of widows, but when I hear about a widow, I don't personally get scared for my safety. I'm not really worried that one of them is going to overpower me. Maybe with a large enough purse they could beat me to death with it. um, So he says, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the wording there um, in the original language that Jesus used uh, would say something like, I don't want her to give me a black eye. So now what we would think is, if you get literal, it's I don't want her to punch me in the face and attack me. But what he's really saying is, if she's giving me a black eye, if she embarrasses me, if she shames me. I don't want her to embarrass me um, because when injustice happening on a judge's watch, that's embarrassing. So a couple things to note there. Um, all right. Now let's look back in this parable. I want to I point out a couple of things. Um, let's go back and walk through this parable. Again, remember I said Jesus is a Jewish prophet and teacher telling Jewish kind of stories to Jewish audiences. So try to I know it's really hard. It could be really hard. Maybe some of you are Jewish. Try to be Jewish for a second. Just think about, um, think about being a Jewish person who lived through the Old Testament stories. You may not know a lot of those. You may know a handful of them. Um, there's probably a couple key ones that almost everyone knows. So let's look in this story and try to unlock what did, what did his disciples as Jewish people hear in the characters of this story? Um, so verse 2, he said, In a certain town... There was a judge, a person in authority that had, a person that had power and authority that didn't care about God and didn't care about people. Okay, so next verse. Uh, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him. Okay, so now there's this person that has power and authority, um, and now there's this other person or group of people that are suffering injustice. Any stories in the Old Testament that have a group of people suffering injustice underneath an authority that doesn't care about God or people? Now, was there any story where the person that was suffering injustice um, went to this person in power over and over and over again asking for something? Okay, let's keep going. Then, um, so for some time, that person in power refused to say yes to this person that was coming over and over again. Um, But finally, even though this person didn't care about God or people, because they kept bothering this person and because this person kept having problems with this group of people, uh, this person in power let this group of people go. Gave them justice. Okay, let's keep going. So that, anyone understand what, anyone with ears to hear, what story are we talking about? Yeah, Moses, the Exodus. Okay, so that sounds maybe strange. Let's keep going and see. Do those echoes continue? So listen to what the unjust says. Unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Anybody heard that phrase before? Chosen ones? Who cry out to him day and night? Remember, why is it that God responded to the Hebrew people in the Exodus story? What was the first thing that happened? God had heard their cries day and night, and he had had enough. Verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice. In that story, did that just judge see that that suffering group of people got justice? Now, interesting to notice, in that Exodus story, did the Hebrew people ever take up arms against their adversary? Who, who took care of the Egyptian army and, the, and Pharaoh? God. See The lesson there is God will fight for us. We don't take matters into our own hands. We'll see if that's going to be important in this story. Um, Okay, so let's, I'm sorry, let's see where that story finishes up there. So I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Doesn't it seem like that last sentence doesn't fit? We'll have to keep working on that. So in this parable, uh, interestingly enough, at first reading, you would think that this is a story about Keep badgering God until he gives you what he wants. Uh, But this story is actually, Jesus is telling a story about the nation of Israel. Why would he be telling the disciples a story about the nation of Israel? So not only is he talking about the Exodus, um, but then if you look at the whole book of Luke, remember this parable is one little chunk within a book that this one author wrote. Now this author, Luke, is retelling the story of Jesus, but he's doing it in a very specific way. I'm gonna see if you can pick up on this. Here's how the, the Gospel of Luke starts. It starts with a baby being born, um, a baby being born to a group of poor, oppressed people, um, even though the king in charge said that all the children or, or all the firstborn males are supposed to be killed. You ever heard a story like that before? Then the next thing that happens is this newborn has to flee and actually ends up being raised in uh, a country called Egypt. Hmm. Uh a Hebrew child being raised Egyptian. Then the next thing that happens is this, uh, this Hebrew child named Jesus, or Joshua in the original language, um, goes, gets baptized and goes through a body of water. Oh, so born, um, raised in Egypt, goes through a body of water, goes, after getting baptized, Jesus goes directly into a desert wilderness for a period of 40 days. Does that sound familiar? Then the last thing, or the next thing that happens, this Jesus gathers a group of 12 disciples around him and starts traveling through the nation of Israel. Do you see what's happening? Luke is totally telling the Jesus story using the exact same movements that the Moses story happened. Because what Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples and to the whole nation of Israel is, there's a new exodus happening. There's something new that's happening. God has heard the cries of his people, and he's going to do something. The whole Gospel of Luke, um, remember I told you that sometimes prophets tell stories, but sometimes prophets have to sort of dramatize and act out stories? Jesus is completely acting out the story of Israel. What he's saying is, I'm the true Israel. I'm the chosen one. In this story, um, Jesus is the widow. Jesus is the widow who's going to suffer underneath an unjust judge, right? He's going to suffer underneath an unjust judge, even though he doesn't have to. And he's going to suffer under the unjust judge um, because of his adversary. But the just judge who's watching all this happen isn't going to sit around forever. He's going to bring justice to Jesus, and he's going to bring it quickly. It only takes a couple of days, right? Um, why would Jesus choose this kind of language when telling this story to the disciples? And what does that have anything to do with prayer or will the Son of Man return and find faith? Now, here's a couple of problems. One is, um, the disciples are a lot like you and I. Uh, I think sometimes we think that they got it and very often they were, ignorant and they couldn't really understand what jesus is saying in some of the same ways that we struggle to understand what jesus is saying because in their head remember they they know this story of the exodus that the story of the exodus is out of egypt through the wilderness into the promised land now in their story they've come out of egypt and then they had a promised land but then they were disobedient and they actually went back into slavery to another nation it's called the exile But then there was this message that started coming. Isaiah writes a lot about it. Comfort my people. I'm going to come deliver them. I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm going to heal and rescue them. So in their heads, they know that this God is going to come and help them again. Um, And now that Jesus is coming, they think that this is the end of the story. It's time for Jesus to set up the kingdom on earth, and we're going to be in charge with him, and all these people that didn't listen to us, all these Gentile people are going to get killed or they're going to get kicked out, and we're going to have utopia. But Jesus is telling them the opposite. He's telling them they're going to have to go back into the wilderness. Because everyone has to go through the wilderness school. There's lessons that we learn in the wilderness. Because even though Egypt isn't around anymore, um... There's still a system in this world that leads to big deals having lots of stuff, and oppressed people having to cry out, asking for basic human rights. I just saw this. Um, I just saw this movie. It's up for a bunch of Oscars. It's called Slumdog Millionaire. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. Um, now I'm on a string where, like, six movies in a row. At the end of the movie or halfway through the movie, I wanted to like take Prozac or kill myself or. I've just had a string of, like, seven movies that were, like, awful and depressing. Um, now, usually what happens in a movie, the kind of movies I like, is um, all stories, all movies have movement. You know, uh, there's a good turn in the story followed up by a bad turn, and then a good turn and a bad turn, and then at the end it's good, and everyone cheers at the end of that movie. Because you, you have to have a bad turn. You have to have conflict, and someone has to fight, and, you know, Rocky has to get his butt kicked for a little while in the ring. Otherwise, once he wins, it's not as exciting, Right. So Rocky gets punched for a while and then Rocky punches the other person for a while and then he gets punched again for a while and then I'm always amazed at how much those guys can take. But. So the problem with this story, Slumdog Millionaire, is it was a bad turn in the story followed by a bad turn, followed by a bad turn, followed by another bad turn and I just kept getting more and more depressed the whole time. Um, the lowest point in the story, they're tracing these uh, an, uh, Indian brother and, and or two brothers and a girl that they meet, their mom gets killed pretty early in the story, so they're orphans, sort of scraping by on, on the streets. Um, so there's this guy that's, that gathers up some of the street children, and he takes them out to this little camp, and you think this is a good turn in the story. This is an orphanage, or this is a Christian who cares about them, and what we find out is what you thought was a good turn was just another bad turn. Uh, that the young girls, he drives into the city every day to prostitute themselves, and uh, the boys have to beg and so, but what he does is he teaches them to sing because then if they sing they can make money so there's this one boy who sings really pretty and so the guy's pretty happy because the kid that can sing well can make a lot of money um, but in this turn of the story this little boy could make more money if he was blind um, and even though I'm not sure if Slumdog Millionaire is a true story it is a very true story The, that the widow crying out for basic human rights and the orphans crying out to not be taken advantage of, that story hasn't gone away. In fact, it's gotten worse. Did you know that uh, slavery, we have the highest number of slaves today than we've ever had in world history? I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you, but we have to remind ourselves. Just, you know... There's children, little girls, having to prostitute themselves and forced to do so. There's some days where I, on my worst days, um, on my worst days, I wonder if God is the unjust judge. The God who maybe doesn't really care about people because he watches all this happen, and he's not doing anything, right? And then I sort of wonder, are, are his people crying out day and night for justice? Or have we gone silent, choosing not to witness? Now, one of the great things about Woodland Hills is that um, there's a lot of room and space for us all to disagree about things. Um... So what I'm about to say, you may agree with it, you may not. I'm just sharing from my own heart something about this that's challenging to me. I wonder when I go buy a t-shirt or a pair of shoes. See, sometimes I think by the way I live and by the way I shop, uh, if I'm going to ask myself what character I am in the story, maybe sometimes I'm the adversary taking advantage of the widow. How, How many kids got beat to make the pair of shoes that I just bought at the mall? That's a hard question. But I don't think the answer is not asking the question. See, that's the beauty about a parable. It's sort of like a diamond. You put it in a room full of people, and you just say, who are you in this story? And one day you might be this person, and the next day you might be another one. You might spin it a little bit. So why would Jesus finish out the story and say, when the Son of Man returns... the one who came out of poverty, the one who chose poverty, the one who chose to willingly suffer for the brokenness of the world, why would he say, when I come back, am I going to find any faith here? That question haunts me. It's like he asked me that personally. Hey, Seth, when I come back, am I going to find any faith in you? And by faith, he doesn't mean did I generally believe in the idea that God sent his son to forgive my sin? We would do well in the Bible every time we see the word faith to take it out and replace it with the word faithfulness. Because like, if if you ask me, do I have any faith in my wife, what that means is, am I being faithful to my wife? So when Jesus returns, when the Son of Man comes back and he looks us in the eye, is he going to find any faithfulness in us? We live in the desert, friends. In our baptism, if you have been baptized, part of what you did was renounce this old way of life that looks a lot like Egypt. Said, oh, I can't live that way. But heaven hasn't fully come to earth yet. So I'm not in Egypt and we're not in the promised land. We're in the middle. Now the middle is a pretty good place to be. You learn lessons like, um, you know, they had manna in the wilderness, and so every day bread would miraculously appear on the ground, and so they were supposed to collect it. Um, But they weren't supposed to collect too much. What happens if they piled up manna? It rotted and it smelled nasty. So we learn this lesson that piling up stuff really stinks. Do we need to learn that lesson again? They had this guidance system that was a pillar, like a big stack of smoke by day and fire by night. And when that would move, they would have to pack up all their stuff and move with it. So they never really built houses because they always knew they weren't ever really settling down in the desert. They were surviving in the desert. They were following and learning in the desert. Do we need to figure out where God's leading and be ready to move? We don't need that lesson, do we? When the Son of Man returns, will he find a faithful community of people living in the ways of Jesus here, standing with people that are oppressed? What kind of prayer does a group of people pray when day and night they're tortured and frustrated by the basic human rights that get denied here on this planet? What kind of prayer does a community pray day and night against injustice? I think it starts off, Our Father. I mean, after all, when we talk about prayer, always praying and never giving up, I wanna, there's a lot of days I want to give up. I am so overwhelmed by the amount of suffering that we find in our world that I don't, some days I don't even know what to do about it. Our Father, who's in heaven, holy is your name. He's the only one who always chooses to do justice all the time. I get impatient. I'm a very impatient person. I hate waiting. I hate waiting for anything. At the bank, for food, I get irritated. Because so, I love control that's why I take such long pauses when I talk <laughs> I'm a sick man, I'm sorry um, but I see a world I live in that I can't control and I feel out of control what do you do when you see something you can't control but, and you feel out of control? you pray You pray the prayer that Jesus taught these disciples just a few chapters before. Your kingdom come. Jesus, may things on this planet be exactly the way that you dream of because right now they're not, not close. The the first part of that is, how much does that bother you? Because I think that they were crying out day and night. How many of you can't sleep at night because of what you see in the world day and night jesus may your kingdom come the way that you want things your dream may it come here in this world on this planet in this neighborhood in my own home in my own heart things in my heart and my life aren't the way god dreamed of i need his kingdom to come I need to always, always pray. And I need to never, never give up. Those are the two temptations. To be faithful means to be patient. Patience is what reminds us that we're not in control. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faithfulness on earth? Jesus, that's a hard question. Our prayer today altogether is that that answer would be yes. With all the suffering happening in the world, it seems like you don't care. And yet this story reminds us that you're the only just judge. And that when people that are suffering cry out to you, you always hear them, and we remember that. It felt like forever that the Hebrew people were suffering, waiting for you to act, and eventually you did. Our prayer in our day is that you would help us be a faithful people who never, ever, ever stop praying. Who never, ever, ever give up. Give us the courage, the courage to witness in this world towards another way, a way of wholeness, a way of shalom, a way of manna, a way of peace. And help us not stop fighting, but fighting in your way, fighting in praying. In your name, amen. All right, have a good week. Thanks for listening.